If you brought your Bible with this morning, I want to invite you to open up to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Last week we started kind of a series that we're going to be doing this summer and going through the Old Testament, kind of doing a high-level overview of the Old Testament and trying to regain an understanding and get some new insights from God's words. But turn to Genesis chapter 17, if you would, this morning, please. We're going to look at three different passages here, going to read, and hopefully you'll see a similarity in all three. Genesis 17 is where we're going to start. Genesis 17, beginning with the first verse. Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant was with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will... Give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now fast forward to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26, beginning with the first verse. We're fast forwarding a couple of years now. Fast forward here to a different person, Isaac, Abraham's son. Genesis 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said to him, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands." And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now fast forward again to Genesis chapter 35, and we're jumping down another generation again. Genesis 35. Genesis chapter 35, beginning with the ninth verse. Now we're to Jacob. Jacob, son of Isaac. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Pedaram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob no longer. Your name shall be, no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Let us pray. Almighty God, we ask that you take these ancient words this morning and speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Grant us understanding, and we pray that you'd reveal yourself to us today, and grant us a, a special 
ability today, O oh Lord, to understand what's going on in the world around us, and grant us the ability to express compassion and be your people in these times. In Jesus' name, amen. How do you respond to a temper tantrum? What's the number one way to respond to a temper tantrum? Not just respond, but stop a temper tantrum. I have no experience in this area because our children are perfect, but I'm assuming that if you were to respond to a temper tantrum, you don't respond to a tantrum with what? A tantrum of your own. It's not the best way to respond to a temper tantrum. If you want to stop kicking, screaming, and crying, you don't stop it with what? More kicking, screaming, and crying. But at the same time, it's also best what? Not just to give in when the temper tantrum starts. Because then what happens? They're going to have more temper tantrums because when you have a temper tantrum, you get exactly what you want. I don't know about you, but temper tantrums are simply not enjoyable. Temper tantrums are not exactly the moment you look forward to. And they're not exactly exciting when you're in the middle of them. Would you agree with me this morning that we're in a little bit of a temper tantrum slash chaos right now in the world around us? Just in the news this last week, almost every single day, there was chaos reported on the front page of every news outlet. If you don't think we're in the middle of chaos, you've been living under a rock, to put it bluntly. We are living in the midst of chaos where there's a lot of kicking going on around us. There's a lot of screaming. There's a lot of crying. There's a lot of yelling. And in the last couple of days, I've seen a lot of temper tantrums from a lot of Christians in response. The question is, should we respond with a temper tantrum? What does all of that have to do with the Old Testament in the book of Genesis? Actually, a lot. Because a lot of what's going on in the world around us right now, a lot of what we would call a tantrum, all goes right back to here, to Genesis. To the promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Believe it or not, one of the biggest things that's causing the most chaos in the world right now goes back to a very simple question. Do we all worship the God of Abraham? Do all of the different religions in the world, the main three, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, do we all worship the God of Abraham? That's what we want to dive into a little bit this morning. Today is going to be heavy. Today is going to be deep. And I, and I don't apologize for that because this, the stuff that's going on in the world around us cannot be solved by coming together and telling some happy stories from SermonCentral.com. The problems that exist in your life and my life can't be solved by coming together and having a feel-good hour together. The chaos is way too turbulent for that. We've got to understand who God is and what God wants as we live in these turbulent times. This morning we turn to Genesis and what we see is we see a promise that's delivered down to three different generations. In each of those promises that's given, it's very similar. The promise can basically be summarized by saying this, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and all nations are going to be blessed through you. So the promise starts with Abraham, and then goes to his son Isaac, and then goes to Jacob. And in each situation, God makes the exact same promise. 
that he's going to establish something great. One thing to note here this morning, when you look at this promise, is this. Notice what the promise is not. The promise is not an absence of problems for God's people. The promise is not an absence of problems for God's people. Actually, it's the exact opposite. If you read the life story of each of these people that received the promise, there's almost nothing easy going on in their lives. Their lives are pretty much a modern-day sitcom. You know, all of the stuff that we're getting freaked out about right now, that we're like, oh, what's the networks promoting on TV, all of this crazy behavior? Guess what? It's nothing new. It's right back here into the earliest days in the book of Genesis. God's people had some serious moral failings early on. Not only did they have moral failings, they also just had persecution and problems. The promise of God is not the absence of problems, but the promise of God is an everlasting nation that will be with an everlasting God. The family that has received this promise of an everlasting nation has a very interesting family tree. And this morning, I just want to take a few moments to help us as we prepare to go into the rest of the Old Testament, understand this family tree of Abraham. It gets kind of complicated, so I just want to throw up here, and hopefully you can see a little bit from seminary days, a family tree of Abram and Abraham after it becomes Abraham. But basically what we have here is Abram, Abram came from Terah, and we talked about that a little bit last week. Abram's father was an idol worshiper. So Abram does not come from a family or a situation where there was honor given to the God of the universe. But God chose Abram still and gave Abram the promise. Now from Abram, remember, Abram couldn't have kids. And one of the main reasons God maybe chose Abram is because Abram couldn't have kids. And so then God worked a miracle where Abram could have kids at an old age. God works that because what? Then only God gets the glory for the son that's given, Isaac. Because there'd be no other ways that Abraham could have a kid unless what? God intervened. So God intervenes and brings a promised son, Isaac. Isaac then has got an interesting situation. We're not going to get into that today, but if you want an interesting love triangle, look at the life of Isaac. Isaac then has two boys. Jacob and Esau, twins, but it's a big deal of who comes out first because of the birthright that goes along with that. And then there's a big fight between the two sons about who gets the inheritance, and there's stealing going on, and there's all sorts of crazy stuff going on. So you got the two kids. These would be the grandchildren of Abram. Now, this is when it kind of begins to get complicated and where maybe you get confused in the Old Testament. Sometimes you read in the Old Testament and you see something where it says Israel And a moment later, it's not talking about Israel, but talking about Jacob or Judah or whatever. You're like, well, wasn't it just talking about the nation of Israel? Sometimes it goes back and forth because God changed the name. So if we saw in our passage here in Genesis 35, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And from Jacob then, we've got the 12 tribes of Israelites that come on that really make up the rest of the story that we'll look at in the Old Testament. So all from Abram, we've got what we would consider the three fathers of our faith, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. We look at them as kind of the fathers of the faith movement. But at the same time, Abraham had some other stuff going on on the side. See, the family tree that we've got here is a little complicated. He doesn't just have children with Sarai, but he's got children with Hagar, Hagar, who works for his wife. You can't make this stuff up thing. It's crazy thing. 
They have a son, Ishmael. Ishmael, we don't go into a great deal here, but Ishmael also receives a promise from God that there's going to be this land that they received. And then if we drew out the family tree further from Ishmael, you would come down now to Muhammad in the round of the year 610 A.D. So the family tree would really work itself way down. But Muhammad, who is known as the leader of the Muslim movement, who's the founder, basically, of Islam, comes from Ishmael, which comes from Abram. In other words, all this religion stuff that's going on today in the world flows from the exact same man, Abram. Complicated, to say the least. But when you begin to understand some of the complications... It helps you with your perspective and understanding of what's going on. Because what's going on? Ishmael is promised a certain land in a certain place. What is Isaac and Jacob promised? They're also promised certain land in a certain place. Anything sound familiar here about fighting over land in a certain place? What's going on in the world today should be of no surprise to anyone. This is not a political fight that is going on thing. This is a religious fight that is going on, and it goes all the way back to Abram, where they had been given certain land, promised lands, from God. And then when those groups lose those promised lands, what do they want to do? Get them back because they think they're God's given right to them. All of this to say, we've got a complicated mess on our hands. So, if all of the religions go back to Abram, don't we all worship the same God then? I want to dig into that a little bit this morning. And to help us dig into that a little bit this morning, I'm going to take us down an interesting trail, and some of you are not going to be happy with me today. Thing. I'm going to take us down a trail and talk about Islam. I'm going to talk about the Islamic faith this morning a little bit. At times I might be positive, at times I might be negative. I'm just trying to give an honest overview of, of Islam and take the politics out of it for a second. So I'm just going to share some stuff with you that, I, that I've learned throughout the years that can maybe help us understand what's going on and then help us understand, do we all worship the same God? Islam can kind of go back to 610 AD where Muhammad then says he received revelation from the one true God. Now this is critical. When Muhammad received revelation, he says he received it from the one true God, the God of Abram. He acknowledges that the God he received revelation from is the same God that's found in the Christian Bible and that's found in Judaism. But he says that's the God he received revelation from. And so then we got the Quran from there, which is the, the writings, basically, of God given to Muhammad. So that's Islam. A Muslim, you could say, is a practitioner of Islam. Sometimes this gets confused in the media world, in the world around us. A Muslim is a practitioner of Islam. They're not two separate religions. But then you've got this issue of Muslim and Arab. This is critical. It, this, and you might say, what in the world does this have us to do with us in Sioux Falls? In Sioux Falls, we have Arabs living here. That does not mean that they are Muslim. They might be Muslim, but it doesn't mean they're Muslim. Arab refers to a land group of people from a specific area. Most of the Muslims are Arabs, and most Arabs are Muslims, but not all. So Muslim is the practitioner of Islam, and Arab is a specific 
people group, just kind of like a South Dakotan. If you're a South Dakotan, it doesn't mean that you are a Christian. So we've got Muslim, which is the practitioners of Islam, and then within the Muslim community, there's two main denominations. Anybody confused yet? Thing? They're just like us. You got, we, they got two main denominations. How many do we have? Thing. I can't even put that chart on the screen because it doesn't fit. They got two main denominations called the Sunni and the Shia. Then they got some small little splinter groups, but the main two are the Sunni and the Shia. So the, the Sunnis are the vast majority that exist all around the world of the Muslim community. So when you hear the Sunni and the Shia on the media or wherever you're reading, you know that that's the Muslim community in different expressions of the Muslim community. If you had to break down exactly what do Muslims believe, it's actually quite simple. Muslims believe in one God, the prophets from that God, the teachings from that God found in his book, angels, and in final judgment. But the main emphasis is on what? One God. That there are no other gods and it's, it's mono. So they would completely disagree with this idea of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit and Jesus, they would say, are not divine. That's the main, main difference. And then to make, help us understand, okay, so if that's what they believe, one God, what do Muslims actually practice? You could say that Muslims practice five things that they call their pillars. You might see this as kind of the pillars of Islam. This is common throughout everywhere. You can find this anywhere. The first is a confession of faith, which is there is only one God. The second pillar of Islam is prayer. I mean, I'm not being heretical here, but if there's something we could learn from the Muslim community, it would be the diligence of prayer. This is an active part of their daily life. We might say that's just crazy what they do. In reality, it just flows directly from their teachings that there is a creator and a judge and they need to be reminded of that throughout the day and they give the reverence and respect to the creator and the judge. So you got confession of faith, you have prayer, and then you've got alms. Alms is, in a sense, a tax or a, or a gift, in a sense, to the temple to make it really simple, basically what we would call an offering. But that's a major piece is an alms, and that's then implemented by the Islamic government in a country. You give your alms to that government, and then you've got fasting. Again, another critical pillar of the Islam faith, and you see this again all the time. They call it the month, they got the month of fasting, and sometimes that's when certain groups in the Islamic community rise up in violence is right after that month, some during that month. And then you got the, the fifth one is a pilgrimage. A pilgrimage means it's kind of this journey to their Mecca, a journey to their kingdom that they need to, that they need to make at least once in their lifetime. And then the ultimate pilgrimage is what? The journey to the new kingdom, to the heaven. And so that's why you've got this promotion in some Islamic circles of martyrdom is because they're making the ultimate pilgrimage to heaven, giving their life on behalf of the one true God. So the Islamic community, the Islamic faith, one God, they got five main pillars that they live on. Now, this could be a little controversial this morning, but I think this is critical for us to understand. The vast majority of Muslims are not 
terrorists. The Islam faith is growing and it's in a lot of places, but the vast majority are not terrorists. I'm not endorsing anything about Islam right now. I'm just sharing a fact thing. There's a minority within the Muslim community that is radicalized. Now here's where the real controversy comes. When you really dig in to what Islam teaching is regarding should there be killing. So the radical community of the Muslim says what? We have to kill the West because of their impurities. That they, some say that comes from the Quran. Others say it's not found in there. But it's a minority that teaches and promotes that. The problem is this. The portion of the Islamic faith that doesn't believe that does not speak up against the portion of the faith that does believe that. So this is the central problem. You have a minor portion of a faith group taking over the world, trying to take over the world. A majority that are in that faith group are actually some of the kindest people that you will ever meet. They are some of the best citizens you'll ever meet in New York City. They'll gladly pay their taxes. They'll gladly help neighbors out with anything. But that group of people is not saying anything against this minority over here that's raging and killing other people. That's a problem. And as a Christian community, that's what we should speak about not speak about the political movement of different countries and things, but speak to the central issue of there's hypocrisy within the Islamic faith. If it teaches it, it teaches it. If it doesn't teach it, those who need to stand up and say something. But none in the moderate Islamic community are standing up and making a difference. So here you've got a small minority trying to run rampant in the rest of the world. Now where do we find ourselves? Completely dominated in conversation by what? This one group of people who are saying they believe in the same God we believe in that are now running everywhere and trying to control everything. So, what does that mean for us? What, what should we do? First, this. Muslims should be treated with the same respect and love that we would give to any non-Christian neighbor. Muslims should be treated with the same respect and love that we would give to any non-Christian neighbor. We've talked about this before. A central difference of Christianity versus other religions is this, how we treat our enemies. Jesus is crystal clear on this. Love your enemies as you love your neighbors. The same command applies. This is, you know, this is absurd. This doesn't make a lot of logical sense. But here's where the Christian community is missing the boat big time. They're kicking and screaming. What are we doing against them? Kicking and screaming against them. I'm not saying anything about military right now, American involvement, nothing about that. I'm just talking strictly in the faith communities. I've heard it here in Sioux Falls. I've talked to doctors here in Sioux Falls. Thing that go to the Islamic Community Center here in Sioux Falls. I've heard it directly from them that they are treated like second-class citizens. And these Islamic practicing doctors and other people of faith here in Sioux Falls are not terrorists. I've got issues with what they believe. 
and I've got issues with how they handle the overall situation. But that does not give me a right to treat them as a second-class citizen. So as the Christian community, it begins by understanding so that understanding can influence our behavior towards them. And I know this is hard because everything in our life says what? Let's just destroy. Let's just get rid of this whole situation. Yet Jesus Christ calls us to a completely different level, a completely different way of interacting. So I just this morning wanted to help you understand a little bit more about the Islamic faith, where it comes from, what it's about, and we could spend hours in details about where the small minority gets these teachings and what the overall implications of all of this is. We could spend hours in that. But the overall message is this. They say they came from the same God and that they've had revelation from the same God. But it's quite different, the revelation that they have received. One example, for example, the Christian teaching historically on the person of Abraham has been, Abram came from an idol-worshiping father, and God chose Abram not because of who he was or what he did. He just, God cho freely chose Abram to use for his glory. God did not choose someone that was good, who was well-known, so that that person would get the glory, but God chose someone unknown, someone who wouldn't even be considered a religious person, so that God could get the glory. The Christian teaching has been that. God chose him, nothing of Abraham's choice, God's choosing. The Islamic community teaches that Abraham, in a sense, was a perfect prophet. That Abraham was taking a stand in the land of idolatry and trying to turn his father and others around. And so you promote more the perfections of the prophet rather than the humanness of the prophet. Just again, it's a, minor, it's a minor difference, but it's a, it helps us understand a little bit some of the differences in Islam community and the Christian community. And then ultimately the difference, if you run down the family lines, so we got Ishmael, which ultimately goes to Muhammad, and if you go down the nation, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you go down, you ultimately get to Jesus Christ. So if you look at the family tree of Jesus, most of you probably just skim right over that part in Matthew chapter 1. I do it all the time thing. But if you actually spend some time looking at that family tree, Jesus comes from Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that all nations will be blessed. So God promises a nation that will bless all other nations. Israel comes. That nation, Israel, brings out the Messiah, Jesus. Now that Messiah is a blessing to all nations. And now comes the differentiation point between Islam and Christianity. How we respond to the person of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, open with me, you would, to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 in the New Testament. Romans chapter 4, beginning with the 13th verse. Romans 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. 
That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered a barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. All of that teaching from Paul in the book of Romans to basically say this. Abraham was declared righteous or made right with God through faith. That was not just for Abraham, but that was a promise that was to go to all generations that you and I today would then what? Be justified or declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. One cannot get to the God of Abraham without faith in Jesus Christ. For there is no access to that God without Jesus who has made that God known. So we could get into a lot of teaching of where Jesus digs into this deep. Jesus even says to some Jews, he says to them, you're sons of the devil, not sons of Abraham. But literally they were sons of Abraham if you followed the tree down. But the reason Jesus said they were sons of the devil is because they did not believe in him. Today, you and I become children of Abraham. We worship the God of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. We receive the exact same promise now through Jesus. This is the distinguishing difference between Christianity and Islam and then any other religion that would follow as well. Who is the person of Jesus Christ? The Islamic community would say the following. He's a great prophet who pointed us to God. But he is not God himself, and he does not provide the only way to God. It goes directly against the teachings of Jesus himself. So this morning, as chaos rages around us, maybe we can take a step back and get some understanding so we can have perspective, so we can engage in compassionate conversation with our neighbors with our co-workers, and with our family so that we can properly represent the God of Abraham, the message of Jesus Christ. We don't have to respond to the tantrum with another tantrum, but we can simply say, this is who Jesus Christ is. Jesus provides us access to the God of Abraham, and there is no other access. And so this morning, I know this has been a little bit different Thing and a little odd. I was actually preaching more about Islam than out of the Bible. 
But just again, that's what's going on in the world around us, and I want to help us gain a level of understanding so we can be followers of Jesus Christ in the world today. For those of you this morning that are wondering, how does this apply? They all live over there. They're in your neighborhoods. They're in school with your children and your grandchildren. So the question is very simple. Will we be Christian neighbors? Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. And Lord, we do thank you that you made yourself known to us in the person of Jesus. We give you thanks that you gave us grandparents and parents that told us about Jesus. We give thanks to you that you have given us the gift of faith to trust in Jesus. And now today, O oh Lord, we pray for wisdom on how we live in this world, walking by faith amongst different faiths. Lord, grant us the ability to understand, yet at the same time, O oh Lord, grant us the ability to stand firm in who you've created us to be. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your patience. We thank you for your kindness to us. We ask now that you'd show that same kindness to others. Make yourself known to them. In Jesus' name, amen.